Hey, y'all. This is Bud Elliott, the college football recruiting editor for SBNation.com, and you're listening to the SBNation College Football Recruiting Podcast. Uh, no guests today, just me, and I'm going to be taking a look at the NFL draft from a recruiting-heavy standpoint. Uh, but first, we have to talk about satellite camps because, well, I, I feel like I'm just contractually obligated to talk about satellite camps every time we do a podcast now. Uh, two notes quickly. If you want to hear more about satellite camps, you can go listen to the previous episode uh, where I discussed it more in depth with, with uh, Alex Kirshner. Today, though, I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon, about 4.30 Eastern Time. Two notes. USA Today reported that the Department of Justice is looking into satellite camps, whether they are, uh, whether the ban is fair, whether it's depriving students there of opportunities to get exposure to colleges, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Really not sure what to expect of, of that. Uh, the other thing is that the, uh, I believe the Board of Governors or Board of Directors, one of the two, uh, is going to give the satellite camp ban a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or perhaps table it on Thursday. There, there are a lot of people who believe that the satellite camp ban may not be completely overturned, but may at some later date be modified. And I'll be watching that on, on Thursday uh, to, to see when that vote comes down. The NCAA doesn't really publish their schedule as to what time that will happen Thursday. So if you are listening to this uh, on Thursday, there's some chance that, that the vote Already came down, so be sure to check SBNation.com for uh, more information on that. So, today, let's get to our main topic, and, and that's the NFL draft. Uh, the first thing is that this matters a whole heck of a lot to recruiting. Uh, recruits very much care about getting drafted. It, it's one of the most important factors uh, that they look at when they pick a college. And, and some cynics say, well, the college is really more about academics, but if you're listening to this podcast, you know that the primary focus of these young men really should be on reaching the NFL and, and playing this game for a living, especially if they're those elite prospects. Now, an education is important, but you have such a short window to make uh, the vast majority of the money that you ever had the potential to make in your life in, in most cases. So much like you would pick a, a school that had good job placement for whatever your desired major or field is, if you're a football player, that really kind of is your major. You'd want to pick a school that, if, if you're good enough to go there, that sends a lot of guys into that into that professional field, which is the NFL. Uh, and teams know this, and they use this a whole heck of a lot in recruiting. Uh, one thing that, that I see a lot on Twitter this time of year is, is all the social media being used by these teams. Uh, Alabama, obviously you have to start with Alabama there, the number one recruiting team in the country for, I think, six years running. Uh, by far the best recruiting team over, over the last four years, and, and really during Nick Saban's entire tenure there uh, after the 2007 class, which was his first and, and not, not all that great. Uh, the slogan, Built by Bama. If you Google that, you'll see all, all the, the, I guess you'd call it propaganda, but advertising PR that Alabama puts out. They send all this stuff to recruits. Hey, look at how many first-round draft picks we've had. Look at how many total draft picks we've had. Look at all the money that, that these guys make in the NFL. This is something that's very popular now. Schools taking and advertising the value of these contracts. There, there's no there's no secrecy. They're, they're not really kind of dancing around the issue. It's, hey, we know you want to, to like Deion Sanders says, retire your mom for life. 
You want to make all that money? We're going to help you do that, and we're going to help you do that by, by putting you in the NFL. So the Built by Bama hashtag, their graphics team there uh, at Alabama does a phenomenal job with that. Speaking of, of graphics teams, uh, there, there are some others that, that are, are big time in this department. I, I think Bama was probably ahead of the curve, sending out some of the first. Uh, well, they, they had a good marriage of, of good graphics guys, people who understood social media, and uh, obviously sending a ton of talent to the NFL. So they had some stuff to work with there. Two ACC teams are actually doing a really good job with this now, too. Clemson uh, had a ESPN special or, or ESPN segment, I think it was on game day, about their, their graphics team and their social media team. They're taking advantage of this. Clemson, I think, could have uh, quite a few guys drafted. We'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later in the podcast. And then uh, just today, I, I was checking out Florida State's feed, as, as some of you know. I also still uh, am the editorial director for Tomahawk Nation, and uh their graphic today noted that Florida State had 29 draft picks over the last three years, which is an NFL record, and that those players with their first contracts will make $91 million in guaranteed money, not not including bonuses or, or years that are not guaranteed, etc. I don't really need to explain the definition of guaranteed money. And they noted that 119 draft picks in the last 20 years is best in the nation. So that, that, that's a, a uh, some pretty good stats there. They're throwing out. Obviously, this matters in recruiting. It, it plays a lot. Ohio State was another team that I noticed this week, sending out a lot of tweets, a, a lot of social media to, to not necessarily to recruits because they're not allowed to tweet at recruits uh, yet. But they, but they can, they can certainly send the stuff via direct message, and they definitely put it out there for recruits to see. And then fans tweeted at recruits all the time. There are five Buckeyes in Chicago this weekend for the NFL draft. And Ohio State is rightfully taking advantage of that. They are advertising it big time, and they're saying, hey, Green Room, because where the players are, are waiting is called the Green Room. They had a graphic today I thought was pretty uh, pretty nice. I saw Mark Pantone, their director of player personnel, uh, he, he retweeted it. It said Green Room, crossed out the green, said Scarlet Room, and it had a graphic of how many players from each school were invited to Chicago for the draft. And Ohio State led the nation with five. I think the next team was three. A lot of schools doing a really good job with, with promoting the, their their programs via social media and promoting their draft results. But who are some teams that we think will see a specific benefit from this year's NFL draft? Uh, well, I'm going to go right back to the Ohio State Buckeyes. Ohio State, obviously the, the 2014 national champions, had a, a strong year. Disappointing by, by some measures in, in 2015 as they were uh, kind of the unanimous or consensus pick to repeat and win the national championship. That didn't happen. But but the Buckeyes were a supremely talented team. Ohio State could have 13 guys drafted. I, I think there's actually some chance they could have 14, but 13 seems like, like, a, like a decent bet. That's insane. Uh, that, that, that's certainly going to set some records, uh, maybe Ohio State records, maybe conference records in the, uh, the seven-round draft era. For our younger listeners, back in the day, and I... I I think this changed over in 94 or so, or 95. It was it was early to mid-90s has changed. The NFL draft used to have 12 rounds or, or even even more rounds uh, previously. It, it kind of more closely resembled the Major League Baseball draft. Now there's only seven rounds, which gives a little more agency to uh, players who, who are not picked in those seven rounds to find a home. But 13 guys could get drafted from Ohio State, including, I think, eight 
or nine in the first two or three rounds, which is just a uh, an exceptional amount of talent from that program. And you can bet Ohio State is going to use this on the recruiting trail against teams like Michigan and Penn State and Michigan State, who are not sending as much talent to the NFL draft. In fact, I think you could probably see a graphic where uh, if I was Ohio State, I know I know what I would do. I'd say, okay, here's uh, top 100 picks. Ohio State, this many. Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, this many combined. And there's a good chance, I think, that, it, that Ohio State may have more. If that, if that comes to bear, Ohio State needs to fire that off. If I'm a recruit, I'm saying, wow, more than all those schools combined? That's, that's really impressive. I think everybody knows Alabama has been the number one recruiting team in the country over the last four years. But I'm not sure that a lot of folks could identify the number two. I, I, I put this question out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and, and I got some people got it right. And some people said Florida State, some people said LSU. But actually, it's been Ohio State, and it's been by a, a fairly clear margin. Ohio State under Urban Meyer has been the second best recruiting team in the country. And, and we're really starting to see those results now with that 2014 title, with, with a nice 2015 season. And with these draft results, now, they probably won't have quite the same draft results in the 2017 draft, and Urban Meyer did lament a little bit that some of these guys were going pro early, but that's still pretty impressive here. Uh, I think people should be looking at with Ohio State. Now, as an aside, I think if you're an Ohio State fan, the, the, the track of that program somewhat closely mirrors the track of FSU under Jimbo Fisher. And I'm not trying to make this an FSU-centric podcast. It, it, that's not the goal. Won the title in 2013, maybe a year before people thought they would. Ohio State won it in 2014, after a lot of people thought they'd be really, really good in 2015. So, arriving a year early. Huge expectations the year after. 2013 or 2014 for FSU, 2015 for Ohio State. Not living up to those expectations... And then off that extremely talented team, but that didn't quite meet those expectations to repeat, sending just an insane number of players to the NFL draft. Last year, Florida State lost three ball games. They went they went ten and three. They they did make a New Year Six uh, Access Bowl and in, in, in the Chick Fil A Peach Bowl and they lost to Houston in that their third loss of the season. How will Ohio State re- uh, rebound from losing that much talent? Uh, the, the very very similar tracks here. That's one of the main storylines I'm going to be looking for in that 2016 season we have coming up. Another team uh, from Ohio State, we're going to go to Ole Miss. Ole Miss, I think it's only had three guys drafted in the last three years. If I looked right on uh, Pro Football Focus's draft finder, if I'm wrong, just please correct me on that. I think I got that right in the show notes here. They can actually have that many guys drafted in round one alone this year with Tunzel, Laquan Treadwell, and Robert Kimdiche. Now, is there some NCAA stuff looming? Are other schools using that against Ole Miss on the recruiting trail? Absolutely. And Ole Miss has not released their, their notice of allegations, and uh, I think they, they delayed, and they'll do that sometime later this summer, which is only fueled speculation that perhaps there's more in it than, than people from Ole Miss want you to believe. But this is definitely going to help a whole lot. I, I read an article, I think, on... Uh, I think it was Gridiron Now or something with Tony Barnhart. I want to give credit here. And he said, uh, think about the picture that Hugh Freeze is going to be able to show off where, where, where he's got his arms around Tunzel and Kibdichie and, and Laquan Treadwell from back in the day in that, in that 2013 
star-studded recruiting class that really kicked all this off for the Rebels. And, and think about that, the value that will have uh, with recruits, because if you're Hugh Freeze, you can say, you know, back then we, we weren't anything. We, we hadn't won anything. And you could say Ole Miss still hasn't won anything, and that, that's that's true. But they, they've certainly made big-time steps under, uh, under Freeze, and that program's in a heck of a lot better position than it was uh, compared to the end of, of the Houston Nut era. Freeze can say, hey, these guys trusted me back when we were anything. You can trust me too because now I have results. Now I can show you I can get you to the league. This program can get you to the league. Uh, Clemson, another school I mentioned earlier. Clemson, I'm, I'm surveying some some various mock drafts here online. Uh, ESPN mocking the draft, which is SB Nation, Sports Illustrated, CBS, Fox. I'll make sure I get credit here to everybody. Um, what other ones did I pull? Uh, Pro Football Focus, NFL Network, and, uh, and I think there's two from ESPN. Clemson, uh, on average, looks like it might have nine guys drafted, maybe even a tenth if, uh, if I counted that up right. That's, a, that's incredible. And, and they lost a bunch to the NFL draft in 2015 as well. Uh, the last time Clemson had anywhere close to this many guys drafted was eight in 1991. And back then, the draft was 12 rounds. So... If Clemson does indeed get nine guys drafted, that's going to be a new school record in the seven-round draft era, and you can bet Clemson's going to promote that like crazy on the recruiting trail. Another winner I think I'm going to, I want to point out here that is actually not going to have its name called all that much is LSU. I think only four or five guys from LSU are projected to be drafted, and the, the reason why I want to point this out is that finally, it seems, LSU managed to not have every single eligible junior on the team jump to the NFL draft. Previously, they all they all left every year. LSU was perennially just one of the youngest teams in the country because of that, and, and I think that one of the reasons why people are so high on them entering 2016, other than that they have a, a decent quarterback in Brandon Harris who, who has potential to grow, uh, and a new defensive coordinator with Dave Aranda coming from uh, Wisconsin, is that they didn't lose all their good juniors to the NFL draft. You have some guys who who came back who need some more seasoning as opposed to getting paid to get that seasoning in the NFL. They've elected to gamble and come back and, and maybe maybe go higher in that 2017 draft. So I, I think LSU is, is probably a team that will win as well on, on draft night, although probably won't be able to promote their, their, their draft record all that much, at least based on just this draft. Another thing that I, I like to focus on around draft season, and I feel like, look, I'm, I'm very transparent about this, and I try to be as transparent as I can be when, when I cover this stuff. I want people to care about recruiting. The more people care about recruiting and realize that recruiting matters a whole lot and that it's actually probably the best predictive tool we have for college football, especially if you're predicting in advance, the more people click on my stuff and, more importantly, the recruiting content put out by our 80-plus SB Nation college football blog. So I, I want people to care about this. And one way I, I try to do that is to debunk the notion that, that stars don't matter. Uh, there's this kind of silly narrative. It's, it's lazy, put forth oftentimes by columnists and, and writers who don't understand the recruiting process. And, and they'll the, the formula is pretty much the same year to year. And every, every year I, I find somebody's and oftentimes it's somebody pretty prominent. I find their article and I, I, I usually just rip it apart because it's it's, it's just garbage. Uh, and w- their formula is simple. that They take a an outlier recruit 
who is a two-star or an unrated kid, and they'll say, hey, he went in the first round. Uh, where, where were all the recruiting services on this? I would never claim that recruiting services are perfect, but, but they are really, really good. Uh, in 2014, I took a look, and I found that four and five stars were actually ten times as likely to be first-rounders as their two- and three-star and unranked D1 counterparts. Uh, for reference, there are about 4,500 kids who sign scholarship papers every year. That's between the FBS, and then obviously there are less kids who sign scholarship papers in the FCS because they have fewer scholarships to give out. But that's about 4,500. The vast majority of those are two- and three-star kids. Only um, you know less than, less than 10%, I think it's about 8%, are four- and five-star kids. So for those kids to be 10 times more likely is pretty impressive, or at least I thought. Until I looked at Dan Kadar, who does our, our mock draft coverage for SB Nation, I looked at his first-round uh, mock draft, and I was amazed. I, I totaled it up this morning for, for an article on SB Nation. 75% of the players in his projected first round were four- or five-star recruits. That That is insane. In fact, if you go by, by those numbers, and I don't know that that will come to pass, maybe maybe a couple other lesser-rated recruits will, will slide into the first round, we'd be talking 30-something, a multiple of 30 times. 30 times more likely to be a first-round draft pick if you're a four- or five-star than a two- or three-star. So I, I don't know who will write this article yet. I, I This year I actually published mine early in order to sort of preempt it and get it out there and get ahead of the narrative, I'm sure it'll come. If a big enough website actually sees fit to publish it, I'll, I'll probably write about it and, and debunk it and uh, kind of go fire, if y'all are familiar with Fire Joe Morgan, the old baseball blog who would kind of take down uh, terrible baseball writing. I, I may do something like that again on one of these. But uh, that's incredible. That That is really, really special work there. Uh, in terms of accuracy and projection from these recruiting services. They're, they are really good. Uh, they're, they're not perfect, but they are... Uh, it's, it's, it's 30 times. Is, is damn sure not random. One area I think they really got... Just, just nailed it here, was the 2013 rankings. Uh, I'm going to go through just the top 20 here. The 247 Sports Composite is, is the one I'm going to read off. They killed it. Number one overall, Robert Kimiche. First-round talent. We'll see if he goes in the first round, but uh, he has all the off-field issues. That's that's a pretty solid ranking right there. Jalen Smith would have been a top-ten pick had he not destroyed his knee. That's a hit. Vernon Hargraves, number three. Vernon Hargraves, another projected first-round type player. Laramie Tunzel could go to, you know, top five. Might be the best player in this draft class. Of course, he's not going to go number one overall. Because these uh, these teams want to take some quarterbacks. Sua Cravens, another really good player for USC. Maybe not a first rounder, but but going to be a high pick. Eddie Vanderdose, still at UCLA, has had multiple uh, multiple leg injuries, and and if he puts together a nice senior season for the Bruins, he could easily uh, go, go go high in the draft. Ruben Foster made a number of good plays in the national championship game for the Alabama Crimson Tide, and, and is a player I, I think will will be selected uh, and paid a lot of money. Next year, Matthew Thomas, guy who, who missed two seasons at Florida State due to suspensions and, uh, and ineligibility, 
and yet he comes back, and he's still on track to make the NFL. He's almost certainly going to be Florida State's best linebacker this year. Kenny Bigelow at USC, another impressive defensive tackle who's flashed at times, unfortunately has had uh, a number of leg injuries. I think he now has an ACL he's dealing with. If he could bounce back from that, the talent's still there. Another, I, I would say that's a hit. You can't ask these evaluators to project when a kid is going to blow out his knee. Montrevious Adams, who elected to stay at Auburn, uh, is going to be counted on to be their number one defensive tackle this year, and, and I think is going to be a top pro prospect in the 2017 draft. Max Brown is battling for the starting quarterback job at USC. Derrick Henry, I think you all are pretty familiar. Christian Hackenberg uh, was very good for a freshman under Bob, or excuse me, under Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien left. James Franklin came in. A lot of people don't think James Franklin can coach offense at all, uh, and Hackenberg struggled. I think a lot of that was his own fault as well, but still going to be an early round pick, and some people think he could even be a first rounder. Laquan Treadwell, number 14 on on the 247 Sports 2013 recruiting rankings. Treadwell's almost a lock for the first round based on all the stuff I've seen. Jalen Ramsey, number 15, almost certainly going top five. Jonathan Allen. Really good pass rusher for Alabama and, and, and a guy who also ended up playing the run better than people thought as, as he added weight. Kendall Fuller, another, another Virginia Tech Fuller brother. Pretty easy call to rank him up there, and, and he's going to go uh, and be a, be a good draft pick. Chris Jones, actually, I'm seeing some first-round draft uh, projections for him out of Mississippi State. When he was on his game, he was Mississippi State's best defensive lineman. When he wasn't, well, he struggled. O.J. Howard. Tied in for Alabama, had a, a just incredible national championship game. Probably wisely elected to stay in school for a senior year so he can show more consistency and be a, a greater focus of that offense. And then Thomas Tyner, another guy who, for Oregon, flashed at times. Unfortunately, he elected to take a medical retirement after he banged up his knee. I don't see anybody in that list who, at this point, I would call a, a major bust. Uh, just based on on ability and, and, and playing football. There are some guys who perhaps are, are not on track to reach their potential due to injury or due to off-field concerns, but th- there's nobody I would say that, there, that was just a huge miss on. Going down the list, I mean, Carl Lawson has battled injury at Auburn, but when he's on, it, he's one of the top, top players on, on defense in the country. Calvin Taylor had a decent career at Florida. He, he was solid. Dependable, probably not going to be a top draft pick, not truly an athletic freak. That's a very good list and a, a, a bang-up job there from 247 Sports on their 2013 composite. And for those of you who don't know, I really should, should be crediting all the other sites too because the composite is quite literally a blending of 247's rankings, ESPN's, Scout, and, and Rivals. So they take, they take them all in to kind of average out some of the outliers that's a really good job. Um, if you don't pay attention to recruiting rankings, if you see the, these folks who say that they don't matter, that, that's just provably and demonstrably false. They do. They're extremely accurate, especially in the aggregate. They're, in individual cases, sure. There can be some inconsistencies. There can be some guys who, slip, who uh, slip through the cracks or, or who are overrated, but on average, um, your four stars are a lot better than your three stars. Your five stars are a lot better than your four stars. National champions recruit more four and five stars than two and three stars for like the last two decades. It's just proven. And I think they're even getting better. I, I wrote about this, I think in 2012 or 2013, 
with things like like more camps, more seven on seven work, and, and better quality digital film available because of, of the drop, the, the the lowered prices of good digital cameras, that has improved the evaluation process so much. No longer do do evaluators or rivals have to go around and collect high school tapes individually and have a huge box of VCR tapes that they have to ship back to their offices like they did 10 years ago. Now, you can any high school coach can just send rivals their film digitally. It can be cataloged, reviewed. You can make sure somebody's watched it. You can make sure a cross-checker's watched it, and then they can put a grade on a kid. And it's better quality. You can actually see what's happening. If you go back 10 years ago, it was very difficult at times to see what a kid was doing on a field, especially a lineman. If he played on, on the interior, you had all these bodies flying around. It was very difficult to evaluate his technique. Now you can see it a lot better because the quality of the film is much better. And I think that tracks just your your average technological advances. Look at, at the film uh, if you have kids. Compare the film that you take of your, your kids playing, playing in the backyard and, and your family home movies. Compare that to the quality of the film of when you were a kid 30 years ago or so. It's night and day. It's night and day. Just just ten years, uh, just just you know, ten year difference, and and be, that's because more access or better quality digital cameras are now more accessible. And while those recruiting rankings are, are really good, uh, as I mentioned, there are some guys who slip through the cracks. It's debatable as to whether they should slip through the cracks, uh, but I, I looked at at this in an article. In May of 2014, and you can Google it and pull it up. It's called "How Sleeper Recruits Still Make the NFL Despite Blue Chip Dominance." We know that these blue chip prospects are a ton better on average than than the uh, than their lesser rated counterparts. But I took a look at at all the guys who are, are two stars making the league. And for those of you who don't know, two stars are the guys who a lot of times are more of your uh, Mac or Mountain West, th- those type schools. You don't see a whole lot of two-stars signing with, with Power 5 schools. Occasionally you do. You see a lot of them signing with, with the group of five schools or even the FCS, which is, is D1AA, if you still prefer that terminology. And, and, and I found some commonalities here of traits that they have, and, and they fit not, pretty neatly into a couple categories. So I broke them down. The factors. First, the player had very limited film due to injury, or focus on another sport. And you can also put in there poor quality film uh, because they, they didn't have a good camera. This is becoming less of an issue now, but but in the past it, it certainly was a pretty big issue. Uh, the player was a punter or a kicker. That's a, that's a factor because oftentimes uh, the ratings are different for, the, for those two positions or specialists. Uh, they gained a ridiculous amount of muscle in college while retaining athleticism. Ding, ding, ding. This is probably the biggest one uh, that I see. The player that it, the player coming out of college is just nowhere near the player coming out of high school and, and could not reasonably be projected to have become what he did become. Uh, the player is from another country. Uh, that is occasionally uh, a factor. Or... Uh, that he was expected to head to junior college because of academics, but somehow qualified for a four-year school. We know that recruiting services, if the player is has really, really shoddy academics, oftentimes will ding him a little bit, uh, knowing that they will reevaluate him later if he actually gets into junior college and, and becomes eligible. Uh, so let's look at, at five players 
in the projected NFL draft who were two stars coming out on the 247 sports composite or even completely unrated. And let's see why they were. The first is Carson Wentz. And I actually wrote an article about this on espionation.com, and it was debunking an article from, I think, the Washington Post, which, which was just... Uh, just silly in saying that, that Wentz is so good because he didn't go to camps and because he didn't have quarterback coaching. And it just the, the, the premise of the article was, was nonsense. And, and uh, I wanted to tear it up more than I did, but my editor, Jason Kirk, uh, uh, helped me walk it back a little bit. And I'm, I'm glad he did because I, I think the final product is, is solid. But let's look at some of these factors. Wentz is from the middle of nowhere in North Dakota. Okay. That's, uh, not a place that college coaches are going to look for talent a whole lot. Not a places that not a place that produces uh, college football talent, and not a place where you would think uh, these recruiting services would spend their resources checking out very much. Uh, he had very li- limited film due to injury. He uh, he, I, I, I know he had some concussions, and then I think he also had some sort of leg injury. If I could pull that that article back up, I'm not going to do that while I'm recording the podcast. Uh, so he had very little film. He also had a huge growth spurt. I, I think they said he was like 5'9", 120 or something like that as a freshman in, in high school. And by the time he was actually big enough to get noticed by colleges, he was hurt. So there was an extremely limited window when this kid from the middle of nowhere was actually healthy. And even then, he was playing against terrible competition. I mean, if you look at, at the very limited film that's available of him from high school... Uh, in which his his numbers are are not all that good, uh, the the, comp- the competition he's playing against is is trash. Almost none of those guys are going to go on to play play FBS ball. And he didn't go to camps and, and combines. It, as noted in the article, he played other sports. He played basketball in the cold. And I don't, I don't even know if there's much seven on seven going on in North Dakota because it, it's it's so cold for much of the of the football off season. So. All those factors, uh, all those factors, certainly conspired to make Carson Wentz a, a two-star recruit. After a growth spurt and, and a lot of time in, in, in a college system, he's become a really good player, and I think he could be an NFL, a really good NFL guy. But is it fair to say that recruiting services should have rated him higher? No, I don't think so. Not when you have that many factors going against you. Next guy I want to discuss is uh, Michigan State offensive tackle Jack Conklin. Conklin uh, is is another guy that checks a number of these boxes for why he was a two-star recruit who may end up as a first-round pick. So let's go through the factors and then let's say, hey, should they have seen this? Should they have not? Uh, He didn't go to camps or didn't go to very many, many camps to get exposure. That's important. College coaches talk to recruiting guys and say, hey, who did you see at this camp that you like? Who did you see at this camp who y'all don't have rated yet, but you may have rated in the future. Who, who caught your eye? He didn't really, really do much of that. As a junior, he was only 6'4", 240. That is not D1 tackle, D1 offensive tackle material as a junior. Most of these, these good juniors that are signing with good schools are at least 280 as a junior. Uh, and they're continuing to pack on weight as a senior. 6'4", 240 is, is just too small. That That's, that's tight end size. And he also checked the next box, which was he grew a whole bunch from 6'4", 240 to 6'4", 280 in a single year. That's really impressive. Uh, at the same time, 
because his growth spurt was so late, he has an August birthday, which is something that recruiters do look at, uh, and, and they say, hey, is this kid exceptionally young for his class? Conklin is almost a year younger, uh, or more in some cases, than other guys in his recruiting class with that August, with that August birthday. Uh, that could have been a sign that they, they should have caught, but I, I have a hard time dinging him for not honing in on that, because still, even with that, you're not going to project a guy to put on 40 pounds in 18 months. He had a good he had a good senior year, uh, but even his own uh, his own coach told Scott.com that the quality of the film back in I think 2011 it was was not all that good. Uh, the 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 actual not the quality of play on the film, but the quality of the film meaning it was shot too far from a distance. Maybe the camera wasn't all that great quality. I think this helps highlight some of the inexact scientific nature that is recruiting rankings, and yet, at the same time, emphasizes how good of a job these guys actually do putting do putting together these rankings. And he was from the middle of nowhere. The western western side of the state of Michigan, not a place that produces very many prospects. Conklin was going to go to, uh, not Hargrave, but Fork Union Military Academy. Ultimately, Michigan State, sees some of his senior film late, sees that he's gotten a lot bigger, and they actually sign him pretty well after National Signing Day. Uh, so that that's an impressive job by Michigan State to to look at all their options, even after many schools had already filled up with their scholarships, and they were richly rewarded for, for that. Uh, but I don't know that you can really say that Conklin should have been a, a, a four- or five-star recruit Based on his high school profile, what he what what he presented to recruiting services, maybe you could say a three was appropriate, and that that services should have evaluated his uh, his his senior film a little more closely or seen him. But at the same time, by his own admission, he didn't go to a lot of recruiting camps to to get noticed. The next guy on this list, who is a former two star type player who could go in the first round, is uh, Paxton Lynch, the the quarterback from the University of Memphis. Now, Lynch is a big-frame quarterback, uh, wasn't always uh, that big, was a former running back. He checks so many boxes here, and and it does show some faults in the recruiting system, perhaps, and, and, and some areas for improvement. But let's, let's start. He was at a tiny school, uh, so already that's kind of a box that, that is not going not gonna to help him get recruited because it, not a lot of recruiting services or High school coaches or college coaches, excuse me, are going to visit that school. Only 600 kids at tiny Deltona Christian. That's K through 12. So I, I mean, barely enough kids to field a football team there. Uh, they don't have they don't have a football field to play on or practice. They have to take a bus down to a nearby park uh, to, to do so. So if you stopped by the uh, the school, you wouldn't see them practicing. It is by Florida standards, and Florida is a state that produces a ton of talent. So there's a distinct difference here between uh, Jack Conklin and uh, Carson Wentz and and Paxton Lynch. And that Conklin and Wentz are from places that really don't produce much talent uh, state-wise. Paxton Lynch is from Florida, a very loaded state, but he is from a place in Florida that does not produce a whole lot of of college talent, and that's Deltona. Uh, Where is Deltona, you might ask? It's kind of smack in the middle, uh, a little bit east. If you drew a line between Jacksonville and Orlando, and you found found the midpoint there, and, and, and you drug it about, about 20 miles east, that's about where it is. 
it's not really on the way to anywhere with the exception of people driving Jacksonville to Orlando or Orlando to Jacksonville. And it doesn't produce a whole lot of talent. There, there's not a whole lot of uh, uh, talent-friendly demographics in that area. He's at, he was at a school that was more known for baseball, and, and in fact, he did play some baseball. Not only that, he was in a wing T offense. Deltona didn't throw the ball. <laughs> or Not, not Deltona, excuse me. Trinity, Trinity Christian at Deltona, and I keep saying Trinity Christian Deltona because there's another Trinity Christian in the state in Jacksonville that's really good. Uh, th- this one is is super tiny in, in Florida's smallest classification, 2A. Uh, they ran a wing T offense. So he had barely any film of him throwing the football to, to show to coaches. And not only that, he was injured during his senior season, which which should have been his best as he was continuing to grow and mature in his, in his body. And yet, he told the story to Yahoo, and I think also to 247 Sports, uh, so I'll, I'll blend those two here, um, about, about his recruitment. And he said, hey, he thought USF was going to offer him, and then they didn't. And Florida Tech, which, which is not, not a... Uh, in an FBS school, they were in on him. Um, he thought at at one point during the Florida 2011 All-Star recruit game that Florida was going to actually take him. And he had a good game in that game. He was finally healthy, uh, was able to show off the arm, throw the, throw the football around a little bit, show some mobility. And at the time, uh, Charlie Weiss was the offensive coordinator of, of, uh, of the Gators. And so here's the quote. From, uh, from Paxton Lynch's dad, I believe this is given to 247 Sports. Quote, It started coming out in the papers that Florida was going to take him and everyone backed off, the elder Lynch said. I got a phone call from Weiss's replacement, Coach Brent Peace, uh, who uh, he was their coordinator, after Charlie Weiss decided to take the Kansas head coaching job. And, and Peace is now, I believe, an assistant on uh, Chris Peterson's staff at Washington. Uh, and Peace said that he was going to come by the house. I thought it was, I thought that was it. Paxton was going to Florida. When he got to the house, he said he was going to take the son of a friend of his, Skylar Morningwig, who has since transferred to uh, Columbia University. He played high school football with his dad or something. His dad is Marty Morningwig, I I should add. Uh, And the elder Lynch says, it was what it was, but it bothered us a little bit. Uh, And then they they, they were speaking to his coach. Uh, He says, we were kind of pissed. I'll admit that, Johnson said. We were a little shocked and a little surprised. It was a whole messed up situation that way it went down. We were not told the kid was better than Paxton. We knew there was a connection with the kid's father, but we weren't ever told he was better than Paxton. He took a friend's kid over this kid. I don't want to throw any, anybody under the bus, but that's what happened. So if you're a Gator fan listening to this, you can probably imagine that the last couple of years may have been different if uh, the Gators had Paxton Lynch instead of Morningweg. But you're talking about a kid who, who had the growth spurt, tiny school in the middle of nowhere, Florida, and if you're in Florida, you're not really going to spend all your time looking in Deltona for players. Wasn't on any kind of big-time 7-on-7 seven seven team from, from what I, I can remember. Played in an offense not conducive to showcasing his skills, and he was injured during his senior season. How did he end up at Memphis? Uh, I believe their athletic director had a connection with somebody on Memphis's staff, and uh, Memphis ended up beating out UCF because at the last minute, Auburn had flipped UCF's QB commitment. So UCF had, had Lynch as their plan B. You can also think, would, would Skip Holtz still be at, at USF if uh, if he had offered Paxton Lynch? USF's not had very good quarterback play or in the last half decade. and Something to be considered there. 
Uh, Vernon Butler, your defensive tackle out of Louisiana Tech. I don't know a whole lot about Vernon Butler, but I do know this. On his recruiting profile, he was listed at six foot three and two hundred forty pounds. At the NFL Combine, he measured in at six foot three, three hundred fifteen pounds. So in the course of let's say four or five years, depending on when that first measurement was taken, either as a junior or as a senior, Butler managed to gain seventy five pounds of presumably good weight. He went from a defensive end to a defensive tackle. This happens. This is kind of one of the more common things that happens. And and the problem is you can't project this because for every Vernon Butler you have, you have a hundred kids who will never gain 75 pounds of good weight over the course of four or five years. Uh, another player I think we, we can focus on from previous drafts who did this. Remember uh, Rashid Hageman, the, the defensive tackle out of Minnesota? He was a 250-pound high school tight end. He gained 80 pounds by the time he, he was drafted. That's uh, that's pretty impressive there. Eric Fisher, by the way, is another, another player who went, I think, number one overall to the Kansas City Chiefs. He said, hey, this is how big I was in high school. I think he was 70 or 80 pounds, from what I recall, larger, of good weight by the time he, he left college. That that's That's just different. That's not something that, that happens normally, and I don't really think there's any way that you can accurately project that. Uh, in fact, most of these kids who I put in the significant body transformation category have gained 55 pounds or more since their high school career ended. Another guy who, who I think a lot of people will be familiar with and checked a lot of boxes in recent years, Khalil Mack, a Florida kid. And people thought, how in the heck did Khalil Mack end up playing at Buffalo? Well... There were a lot of reasons. He was 6'1", 215, which is very good linebacker size in, in, in this day and age when all these teams play at the spread, and you have to defend against that. But Mack was a prep basketball player who, as a junior, suffered a patella tendon injury that threatened his high school athletic career. He returned to health stronger than before, but he wasn't even thinking about football until his coach told his dad early in his, in his senior year, said, hey, uh, if you allow him to play football... He can go to college for free. So you're looking at a kid coming off a, a, a serious injury, no film to send out to college coaches, good size, but, but not amazing size, uh, very nice athleticism once he recovered from the injury later in his senior year, uh, but unrefined football skills. That guy ends up being a top 10 pick in the NFL draft just in, in 2014, but, but not necessarily a guy whose services should have been on, so... And the last guy here to look at was William Jackson. And William Jackson checks the box of uh, expected to go, and this is the cornerback out of the uh, University of Houston, expected to head to junior college because of academics, but somehow qualified for a four-year school. He uh, he did go to a junior college, I believe, for a year. Ended up getting into Houston and uh, and, and played extremely well for them. Maybe a player who should have been a three-star instead of a two. I, I know Rivals had him, I think, as a, as a three-star Maybe another service did too, but his overall average was that of a two-star. So those are the five guys in this draft who are projected to go in the first round who were two-stars. And as you can see, the vast majority of them absolutely should not have been bumped up to four- or five-star status based on what they presented to high school evaluators. The uh, next thing I want to talk about here is something interesting and, and I saw some some betting props on this and, and I like uh, 
to follow college football gambling and, and, and wagering. And I actually write the college football gambling column for SB Nation as well. Uh, one of the many hats I wear there. There was an over-under, and I forgot what, what, what uh, betting website this was on, but, but it offered uh, a betting question, would there be more or less than three and a half quarterbacks drafted in the first round? I'm inclined to take more, and I'm recording this before the first round, so bear with me here if, if I'm wrong, whatever. I think the point on this still stands. And, and the issue why I think it's going to be four, I don't really feel like there are four NFL-ready quarterbacks in the first round, or, or maybe the bet was was three, so so three would be a push. But I, I think, regardless, the reason why I think that there's a chance to have four quarterbacks drafted in the first round is because of the new rookie rookie cap and the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, the the the, the thing under which Goodell was able to uh, suspend Tom Brady. If you look at it, first round players are signed to five year contracts. That's pretty standard. Second round players are signed to four year contracts. If you like a quarterback good enough or well enough to take him in the early second round, it actually behooves you to trade up into the first round to pay him more money per year through the first four years because you get that fifth year locked in at the cost controlled rookie salary cap price. Now, if you fail, Whatever. Under the new rookie cap, these rookie deals don't pay out that much money. But if the kid's really, really good, this is a huge deal. In fact, look at what... what Because you're getting that fifth year not at the outrageous free agent price that you might have to pay him, like the Seahawks had to do with Russell Wilson, but rather at that cost control price like the Minnesota Vikings have Teddy Bridgewater at. Because he was a first-rounder, the, the Vikings got him at the very end of the first round. So if I had, let's say, pick 40, you can bet I'm trying to flip somebody a fourth rounder so I can move up to pick 31 to take that quarterback. Even if I'm not totally sure I'm right, the potential value down the road of having him locked up could be the difference in your team having to sign him or having him already under contract in that fifth year at that rookie, very low cost control price and be able to keep another free agent. Ask the Seattle Seahawks how they feel about having to pay Russell Wilson all that money and seeing these other free agents walk away. Probably not that great. I mean, look, they obviously love Russell Wilson. Uh, Shout out Brian Floyd here. But they lost key free agents because they had to pay him so much money in in that that deal. I do think that you're going to see this continue as long as the five-year first-round rule continues in relief of of the uh, the four-year Second round rule. I hope that made sense. That might actually be something that's better uh, examined in print as opposed to on broadcast. But that fifth year of cost-controlled player, especially at the quarterback position, is just so valuable that it makes a lot of sense to to take that player in the first round. I I think one issue that comes off this, though, is if you had a guy and you you were determined on taking a quarterback maybe in the late second or, or the early third, does it still make sense to trade up and, and overdraft him that much? I don't know. There's probably a line there, and I, I'm not quite sure where that line should be drawn. But, but I definitely think that if you are in the first half of the second round, you need to be trading up into the back half of the first round so that you can you can potentially lock in that cost-controlled fifth, uh, fifth season. 
All right, now time for reader questions. I think we have a couple today. All right, our first comes from Billy Gamilla, uh, who you can find at ATVS underscore Chef Billy of our LSU website and the Valley Shook. Uh, they do a great job over there covering all things LSU. He asks, uh, Bud, if there are a way to trade recruiting positions like draft picks, what teams would freak out and trade up for five stars? Ooh. Um, this is an interesting question here. So let's get to unpacking it. The first thing you have to do is compare college football to the NFL. In the NFL, I think you have like, what, a, a 50-man roster or something? In, the, in college football, in FBS, you have 85. So already there, uh, you, you have you know about 50% more scholarships to play or more, more roster spots to play with in college than you do the NFL, which means that depth definitely matters. This is kind of analogous to fantasy football or fantasy baseball. If you have a big-time number of slots you have to fill, then sometimes a three-for-one type trade might actually make sense for your team. If you're playing in a very shallow league uh, with not very many spots to fill, then you probably only want to do one-for-one trades uh, because you're ultimately going to have to drop guys off your roster. So you, you get into this sort of value over replacement player type context. As far as teams that would trade up, I, I could see some teams like, like a Michigan State doing it because I, I think if you look at this, they have a hard time landing the, the, the best of the best kids, but they do a great job scouting uh, and, and kind of scouring the ranks of your, your, three, your three stars and your two stars. So I, I think that if you're a team that is very good at scouting, and you're confident in your ability to to unearth those diamonds in the rough, per se. Maybe maybe you go ahead and trade some of those, those spots to get to get some more five stars, because you think you're going to be able to to sift through what's left to fill out the rest of your roster. Um, I could see maybe Miami doing it just because the, the there's such a star star culture down there, and, and it's such a, a pro uh, town. Other teams. I, this is an interesting question. I, I may actually want to write on this at a future date. That's that's a good one. Next uh, comes from uh, Dakota. He asks, uh, do you believe that Wentz going number two will influence coaches to expand recruiting trails to find these, quote, diamonds in a rough? I do not. Uh, and here's why. You only have a limited amount of time when you go on these recruiting trips. Are you going to spend it in Jacksonville? Or are you going to spend it in where there are... are what, 30 FBS prospects? 40? Maybe? Are you going to spend it in Jacksonville, or are you going to spend it in Deltona, where there may, may or may not be even even a single one, which is where Paxton Lynch played? I think if you had unlimited time and unlimited resources, sure, you'd want to make sure that you, you find these diamonds in the rough, but if you're a school that doesn't normally sign those type kids, and you find them, and they commit to you, word's going to get out, and eventually some of these other schools are going to look at this kid and if he's really good, they'll probably swoop in and take him from you anyway. So if, if you're a really good school, you probably want to spend your time on, on, on the big areas. And if you're a small school, I don't know if necessarily you're going to get all the reward for all that work you have to put in. I, ultimately, the main constriction here are the NCAA rules that limit the amount, number of days you're allowed to be on the road, the number of phone calls you can make, all those wonderful things the NCAA tries to impose for the uh, – quote-unquote, protection of the athlete, but also so that coaches uh, aren't, aren't worked to death and they have some time to spend with their families. Third question today comes from uh, Dr. 
Arish. Uh, he says, is there a school that NFL teams think tend to excel at the next level or conversely that have a higher bust potential? You know, I, I don't necessarily, I, I think there are some. And for instance, I, I know some NFL teams may uh, not like Nick Saban's defensive backs quite as, quite as much uh, because they, they, set, they, team, they seem to play better for him in college than they do in the NFL. And some people don't like the, uh, the, the shuffle technique that he teaches as opposed to, to the backpedal, although I think that might be changing and more, some more NFL teams are, are perhaps using the shuffle. Maybe you look at Texas Tech with quarterbacks. Are you really want to draft a Texas Tech quarterback at, or, or an air raid quarterback? I wrote about this this week with Jared Goff, and I do think that the air raid and those type of offenses that throw the ball 60 times a game out of the spread – I think that does hurt your development for the NFL, and I believe those players coming, those quarterbacks coming out of those systems, do have a much steeper and more difficult transition into the NFL than quarterbacks from pro-style systems. But at the same time, I argued like with Goff, this might be overblown a little bit because these guys putting up these huge numbers in these offenses oftentimes just aren't that talented. For the most part, your super elite quarterback recruits are not picking air raid schools. If, like Goff, who, who originally committed to Jeff Tedford but stuck with Cal after it hired Sonny Dykes in the air raid, if more elite quarterback recruits do pick those schools, I think you might see the fortunes turn a little bit, and you have to evaluate the player on an individual basis. And I'll give you two examples. Jeff Tedford had a number of NFL busts, I mean, uh, to, to go back to the Cal thing here, a number of NFL busts before he had Aaron Rodgers, who turned out you know, to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL of my lifetime. Jimbo Fisher, Jamarcus Russell, phenomenal talent, but had a number of off-field stuff, some of it beyond his control, and, and a total bust for the Raiders. Set their franchise back several years. Christian Ponder, an overdraft by the Vikings. E.J. Manuel, a massive overdraft by the Buffalo Bills. We actually got ripped at Tomahawk Nation for saying we wouldn't take Manuel uh, in, in the top 100 picks. If you had gone with their track records before uh before Rodgers came out out of Tedford system, but before Jameis Winston came out of Fisher's system, you would say you don't want to take a, a quarterback from those systems. just the same thing as you would say you don't want to take a quarterback from the Texas Tech systems. That's why it's so important to evaluate the individual player and not just focus on the system. But you do have to pay attention to tendency and perhaps previous pitfalls so you can say, hey, why is this player different? Why will this player avoid the things that tripped up the other guys that came out of this system. Big thanks to everybody who sent in all those questions. Uh, if you have a question, please be sure to uh, hit hit me up at SBN Recruiting on Twitter. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Recruit Letter. It, it's a free college ball recruiting newsletter that I publish uh, on weekday mornings. I know it's hard to follow national recruiting. Everybody follows the recruiting of their team, but it is kind of difficult to say or to, to have a, a great feel for what's going on with, with all the big teams nationally without visiting you know, 20 or 30 different sites, I bring that to you in one newsletter for free. Each weekday morning, you can kind of say, huh, interesting that my rival is doing this, or look at this trend in this other conference. If you're into recruiting, if you've listened to a college ball recruiting podcast for 55 minutes, you probably are. Make sure you sign up for the recruit letter. Finally tonight, uh, we have two uh, upcoming announcements that I think are going to be interesting. Demetrius Robertson, who is the final uh, remaining unsigned five-star player from the class of 2016, 
from Savannah, Georgia, offers from a number of elite schools. He delayed his recruitment and his announcement because he was trying to get into Stanford academically. It looks like he did not get the test score to uh, to do that and, uh, and is now going to decide between Cal, Notre Dame, and Georgia. If I had to place a bet, I think I would put it on the Bulldogs and, and that uh, Robertson would stay close to home. An elite receiver or corner, I think he could be a, a great corner in Kirby Smart's defense, but also really good with the ball in his hands, and, and Georgia does need help out wide at receiver. That's going to be on Sunday on May 3rd. And then Josh Kando uh, is expected to announce, I, I believe, sometime next week, if, if I read that correctly, uh, or at least a, a top four that uh, had Notre Dame, Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State. Not entirely sure where he's going, the five-star defensive end from the IMG Academy. Although, if you look at it, another uh, another thing here where IMG kids almost always return to the region from from where they came. He transferred in, and, and he's from, I believe, the... Uh, I think... Where's Josh from? I think he's from the Indianapolis area. Anyway, he's going back up to the Big Ten, and he told me in uh, in late February, early March, whenever the Orlando Nike camp was, I said, so are you considering staying in state for school? And he said, no, not really. It's too hot. I want to go back up north. We see that trend over and over again. These schools that were initially worried that these kids who transfer into the IMG Academy in Bradenton would ultimately stay in Florida, it's just not happening. They're going back to their home regions. And in fact, I have an article coming out on that either uh, next week or the week after as always, we very much appreciate you listening to the College Ball Recruiting Podcast brought to you by SB Nation. Uh, we are not on iTunes yet, but hope, hope to be. As of now, we're on SoundCloud, and soon I'm going to have us on uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, maybe tune in. And if you have another podcast app that you want this to appear on that, that you're partial to, please uh, let me know, and I'll see what we can do about getting it on there. Thanks.